This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Dave, hello, how are you? Hey, John. So I'll just start out with a few sentences about your background, and, and, then, um, and then we'll go from there. Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We are delighted to welcome today a, a friend of mine, a professor of systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, and he also serves now at Westminster as Vice President for Advancement. He is a, a writer, a conference speaker, and he has uh, served in pastoral ministry in the past. So, Dave Garner, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me today, Jonathan. I want to talk today about theology and confessions, uh, and, and I want to start out by talking about something that I hear very often when confessions are brought up. Uh, are confessions biblical? And I think the follow-up kind of corollary to that is some people think actually confessions uh, constrain us in our reading of the Bible. So could you address that? Love to. In fact, you know, my own background, Jonathan, is exactly that context. I grew up in a context in which there was this common notion, sometimes spoken, usually unspoken, but it's essentially no creed but the Bible, and that anyone who occupied a denominational context or thought in confessional terms was actually adding a, a second authority to the Bible, much like um, what some would perceive as, as being just basically a carryover from Roman Catholic debates in the Reformation period, that, that, that those who do confessions are basically still doing the same thing, having more than one source of authority. So I, I very much resonate with that concern. Uh, you know, it's interesting that Paul will, will very openly speak about the, the theology of the apostles as a deposit, as something that is, it, it has meaning and even begs for, with the language of deposit, the, the, the stewardship of that to which he calls Timothy, for example, requires a, a summation of that biblical teaching. You know, the Bible is not a systematic theology. It's a, a divinely given record of God's work in history for our redemption, and it is an inspired interpretation of those acts of God. But because it's divine, the Spirit is the authoritative voice of Scripture, and He speaks truly, He speaks truthfully, and He treat, speaks trustworthily. And so what He reveals actually begs for summation and summary, so much so that what we actually have in the Scriptures um, are places in which the early church summarized its own understanding of the apostolic teaching, both what was written and what was spoken by the, uh, the apostles. And so a place like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, a very familiar section of Scripture, is widely recognized as an early confessional statement about the gospel. What is the gospel? Even the terse statement that the early church employed, Jesus is Lord, is a confessional statement. And perhaps one additional feature that I'll mention is that the author of Hebrews calls his readers to hold fast to their confession of Christ Jesus. 
well, that's not merely to hold fast to some concept of Jesus that is not shared. It's not that everybody has their own concept of Jesus that they're to hold fast to, but it's actually to hold fast to the Jesus that was preached by the apostles and what scripture the Old and New Testaments say of him. And so the very scriptures themselves call us to a confessional faith. Now, how do confessions help us then in our study of theology? You've made a, a case that in the Bible they're present, and in the Bible they're they're really kind of mandated or demanded. But in a in a practical sense, you teach theology. Yes. How do confessions help us in our study and and teaching of theology? Really, there's several metaphors that actually come to mind. One is you know sort of the the, the train track metaphor that the the confessions as a summary of biblical teaching help keep us uh, on track, as it were. Um, and I think they, they provide the rails to keep us from, from becoming derailed in our theology. I think one of the glorious dimensions of confessional faith is that it is not merely a contemporary articulation of faith, that's not to divorce it from its own historic context, but it's a recognition that saints through the ages have been uh, studying Scripture, and these confessional statements um, are statements that reflect the church through the ages of its understanding of biblical teaching concerning the Trinity, concerning the person and work of Christ Jesus. So one of the things that the confessions do is help us to keep from going off track from what the church has understood to be the summary of biblical revelation. One other metaphor that I'd like to employ is actually the, the metaphor of the game of tennis. If you and I went out to play tennis one afternoon and I said, okay, Jonathan, I actually have a new way to play tennis. I, I actually want to uh, scribble out all the lines and take the net down, um, and we're going to play tennis without the lines. Well, what that does is it actually completely uh, removes the purpose of the game. Uh, it takes no skill, it takes no precision, it takes no care, um, and it's you know who wins and loses is wholly a subjective. You know, I may say that the ball is out, but there's no line. Then you're going to say, what do you mean it was out, right? So one of the things that, that, that is helpful in terms of thinking of confessions, they actually provide those lines in which we are to, to function. And they are lines that are not just willy-nilly created, but they are the lines which the church has understood through the ages. And so that the church, when she operates faithfully, is going to recognize that when we study the Bible, um, that we should operate within those lines. Now, let me make abundantly clear, I'm not saying that confessions bear greater authority than Scripture. In fact, in fact the, the great confessions, even like the Westminster Confession of Faith, begs that the confessional language be changed if the church understands the statements of the confession to be out of line with Scripture. So we must clearly depend upon the authority of Scripture, but we do so to our, our, our real demise if we ignore what the Spirit has revealed to the church through the ages, and we stand on the shoulders 
of those who have gone before us. So they, these confessional statements are wonderful in terms of protecting us from heresy and all, errors of all sorts and shapes and sizes. So I'm wondering then if you um, acknowledge that, of course, you know, the scripture has to stand over and above any confessional statement. So you're not you're not falling into this error of of placing tradition on par with scripture. But given that, um, what what kind of room is there? What kind of flexibility is there in a confession for for you to say, perhaps in your teaching, you know, I'm not. Although this is is great in that it connects us with the past and, and with uh, Christians who have gone before us, I, I don't actually think this tenet is right. I mean, so how, how much flexibility is that? Is there for individual Christians or pastors or uh, or, or or systematic theology professors to to yeah. engage in that kind of thing? Well, and here, this is one of the most important features of this discussion that often doesn't get raised, Jonathan, and that is that, you know, every believer, as Scripture teaches, possesses the Holy Spirit. We, um, as, as John Murray has put it wonderfully, that um, the noetic effects of regeneration are the illumining work of the, is the illumining work of the Spirit. The noetic, of course, those in theology will know that term. But it has to do with the mind, that what the Spirit does is that He illumines our minds to the Scriptures. And every generation of the Church has the responsibility to study those Scriptures. But what is often neglected in this is that the the presence of the Holy Spirit in every believer does not mean, then, that every believer has the ability or right to interpret the Scriptures privately, and come to his or her own conclusions, and even if they differ with the historic church, or, you know, it, what the, the Spirit's presence in our heart and life does not make us autonomous interpreters of Scripture. Rather, the Spirit who is given to you is the same Spirit who is given to me, that the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, which makes him then the Spirit of the church. So in my context, for example, as an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, I have the responsibility of subscribing to the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms. But that does not mean that I don't, take, I don't have the freedom to take exceptions to statements in the confession which I would deem as not faithful to Scripture. So what is my responsibility? My responsibility is to submit my exceptions to the authorities in my life, in my denomination, and say, these are what my exceptions are, and they determine whether or not those exceptions are of such a nature that they conflict with the very heart of the gospel, the heart of religion, as it were, or whether these are things that men can rightfully disagree but still hold to the key tenets of the faith. So that is true in my uh, ordained context. It is also true in my teaching context in which we have the same standards at Westminster Theological Seminary where I stand, and I do have recorded exceptions to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so, again, this is where I believe that the conscience is properly guided by the Spirit, but not in some sort of uh, autonomous way, but in a very churchly and ecclesial way, which I think is critical for our understanding of what even the task of biblical study and interpretation is. 
So I like how you're connecting the confessional statements themselves with the structures that that are present within the church. That's that's a really helpful way of of thinking about it. We don't have one without the other, and I, I think that's a very important thing. You know, even the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. Kuiper articulates this quite well, as does Bovink, actually, and that is that the scriptures are actually given to the church. And Westminster Confession, Chapter 1, makes in the very opening statement, the first paragraph of Westminster Confession, Chapter 1, um, actually makes it clear that the scriptures have been given to and entrusted to the church. Well, that means that none of us are individualistic interpreters, and that the, the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation in Scripture, leads to a doctrine of the church, of ecclesiology. And you, you, when you, whenever you separate those things, you actually not only do an injustice to the interpretation of Scripture, but you actually do an injustice to Christ as head of his church, uh, through, uh, through in whom we are saved and who has poured out his Spirit upon us. One last question, Dave. You mentioned earlier in one of your answers about um, you know the context in which you grew up, and I, and I don't I don't want you to to go into all that. I know that's a long story, but I'm wondering along the way as you came to the convictions that you have now about confessional things and doing theology in a confessional context, were there a couple of books or perhaps a couple of key uh, talks or sermons that that you heard where that that changed your perspective on this? Uh, I, I'm just wondering what resources you might suggest for others who are, are perhaps exploring these same issues themselves. Or maybe there are resources that you'd just recommend today that you didn't encounter, but but you, you think are really commendable. Yeah, it's a great question. I'd actually, in my own personal, uh, my autobiography is not that there was one volume or one thing that set me in this trajectory. Uh, and I'll make comment about some contemporary resources in just a moment, but this might sound a little funny, but, you know, in my context in which confessional theology was not respected, that was not respected in such a way that I was never exposed to the confessions themselves. And, and so I had this sort of predisposed uh, antipathy towards the confessional statements, the creeds themselves, but yet had never read them. And I, I remember, this wasn't my own experience, but I will tell you that somebody I know very dearly who um, has a similar testimony to my own, um, when he first read the Westminster Confession of Faith, he wept. Uh, and I understand that because in the theology that is so gloriously expressed in that uh, Westminster Confession, and not all of it is as good as others, I'll admit, but it is gloriously rich. And to be exposed to that, that was, I really would have to say, in some measure, it was being exposed to the things that I wasn't, quote-unquote, supposed to be exposed to that led me to an appreciation not only the theological value, but the eminently biblical character of such statements. And so that would be my own testimony, would be essentially being exposed to the confessional statements themselves. I'd encourage people, rather than uh, critiquing the statements, uh, to carefully read them and study them. Use a, uh, a commentary on 
um, the confession to help you walk through it. An older one that I might might commend would be A. A. Hodge's commentary. But more recently, I think what Shad Van Dixhorn has written is a great new commentary on the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, and I would strongly encourage people to read it. Yeah, both of those are excellent volumes. I'd commend both of them uh, to our listeners as well. Dave, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciated this, and, and I think it's been it's been very helpful for us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to... Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.